Section 65 of the Expedition of Humphrey Clinker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lynn. The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker by Tobias Smollett. Section 65. To Dr. Lewis. Dear Doctor, The peasantry of Scotland are certainly on a poor footing all over the kingdom, and yet they look better and are better clothed than those of the same rank in Burgundy and many other places of France and Italy. Nay, I will venture to say they are better fed, notwithstanding the boasted wine of these foreign countries. The country people of North Britain live chiefly on oatmeal and milk, cheese, butter, and some garden stuff, with now and then a pickled herring by way of delicacy. But flesh meat they seldom or never taste, nor any kind of strong liquor except twopenny, at times of uncommon festivity. Their breakfast is a kind of hasty pudding of oatmeal or peas meal, eaten with milk. They have commonly pottage for dinner, composed of kale or coal, leeks, barley or big, and butter, and this is reinforced with bread and cheese, made of skimmed milk. At night they sup on sowens or flummery of oatmeal, in a scarcity of oats, they use the meal of barley and peas, which is both nourishing and palatable. Some of them have potatoes, and find parsnips in every peasant's garden. They are clothed with the coarse kind of russet of their own making, which is both decent and warm. They dwell in poor huts, built of loose stones and turf, without any mortar, having a fireplace or hearth in the middle, generally made of an old millstone, and a hole at top to let out the smoke. These people, however, are content, and wonderfully sagacious. All of them read the Bible, and are even qualified to dispute upon the articles of their faith, which in those parts I have seen is entirely Presbyterian. I am told that the inhabitants of Aberdeenshire are still more acute. I once knew a Scotch gentleman at London, who had declared war against this part of his countrymen, and swore that the impudence and knavery of the Scots in that quarter had brought a reproach upon the whole nation." The river Clyde above Glasgow is quite pastoral, and the banks of it are everywhere adorned with fine villas. From the sea to its source we may reckon the seats of many families of the first rank, such as the Duke of Argyle at Roseneath, the Earl of Bute in the Isle of that name, the Earl of Glencairn at Finlayston, Lord Blantyre at Areskin, the Duchess of Douglas at Bothwell, Duke Hamilton at Hamilton the Duke of Douglas at Douglas, and the Earl of Hindford at Carmichael. Hamilton is a noble palace, magnificently furnished, and hard by is the village of that name, one of the neatest little towns I have seen in any country. The old castle of Douglas being burned to the ground by accident, the late Duke resolved, as head of the first family of Scotland, to have the largest house in the kingdom, in order to plan for this purpose. But there was only one wing of it finished when he died. It is to be hoped that his nephew, who is now in possession of his great fortune, will complete the design of his predecessor. Clydesdale is in general populous and rich, containing a great number of gentlemen who are independent in their fortune, but it produces more cattle than corn. This is also the case with Tweedale, through part of which we passed, and Nithsdale, which is generally rough, wild, and mountainous. These hills are covered with sheep, and this is the small delicious mutton, so much preferable to that of the London market. As their feeding costs so little, the sheep are not killed till five years old, when their flesh, juices, and flavour are in perfection, 
but their fleeces are much damaged by the tar with which they are smeared to preserve them from the rot in winter, during which they run wild night and day, and thousands are lost under huge wreaths of snow. Tis pity the farmers cannot contrive some means to shelter this useful animal from the inclemencies of a rigorous climate, especially from the perpetual rains which are more prejudicial than the greatest extremity of cold weather. On the little river Nid is situated the castle of Drumlaunrig, one of the noblest seats in Great Britain, belonging to the Duke of Queensbury, one of those few noblemen whose goodness of heart does honour to human nature. I shall not pretend to enter into a description of this palace, which is really an instance of the sublime in magnificence, as well as in situation, and puts one in mind of the beautiful city of Palmyra, rising like a vision in the midst of the wilderness. His grace keeps open house, and lives with great splendour. He did us the honour to receive us with great courtesy, and detained us all night, together with above twenty other guests, with all their servants and horses, to a very considerable number. The Duchess was equally gracious, and took our ladies under her immediate protection. The longer I live, I see more reason to believe that prejudices of education are never wholly eradicated, even when they are discovered to be erroneous and absurd. Such habits of thinking as interest the grand passions cleave to the human heart in such a manner, that though an effort of reason may force them from their hold for a moment, this violence no sooner ceases than they resume their grasp with an increased elasticity and adhesion. I am led into this reflection by what passed at the Duke's table after supper. The conversation turned upon the vulgar notions of spirits and omens that prevail among the commonality of North Britain, and all the company agreed that nothing could be more ridiculous. One gentleman, however, told a remarkable story of himself, by way of speculation. Being on a party of hunting in the north, said he, I resolved to visit an old friend whom I had not seen for twenty years. So long he had been retired and sequestered from all his acquaintance, and lived in a moping, melancholy way, much afflicted with lowness of spirits, occasioned by the death of his wife, whom he had loved with uncommon affection. As he resided in a remote part of the country, and we were five gentlemen with as many servants, we carried some provision with us from the next market town, lest we should find him unprepared for our reception. The roads being bad, we did not arrive at the house till two o'clock in the afternoon, and were agreeably surprised to find a very good dinner already in the kitchen, and the cloth laid with six covers. My friend himself appeared in his best apparel at the gate, and received us with open arms, telling me he had been expecting us these two hours. Astonished at this declaration, I asked who had given him intelligence of our coming, and he smiled without making any other reply. However, presuming upon our former intimacy, I afterwards insisted upon knowing, and he told me very gravely he had seen me in a vision of the second night. Nay, he called in the evidence of his steward, who solemnly declared that his master had, the day before, apprised him of my coming with four other strangers, and ordered him to provide accordingly, in consequence of which intimation he had prepared the dinner which we were now eating, and laid the covers according to the number foretold. The incident we all owned to be remarkable, and I endeavoured to account for it by natural means. I observed that as the gentleman was of a visionary turn, the casual idea or remembrance of his old friend might suggest those circumstances which accident had for once realised, but that in all probability he had seen many visions of the same kind which were never verified. None of the company directly dissented from my opinion, 
but from the objections that were hinted I could plainly perceive that the majority were persuaded there was something more extraordinary in the case. Another gentleman of the company, addressing himself to me, "'Without all doubt,' said he, "'a diseased imagination is very apt to produce visions, but we must find some other method to account for something of this kind that happened within these eight days in my neighbourhood. A gentleman of a good family, who cannot be deemed a visionary in any sense of the word, was near his own gate, in the twilight, visited by his grandfather, who has been dead these fifteen years. The spectre was mounted seemingly on the very horse he used to ride, with an angry and terrible countenance, and said something which his grandson, in the confusion of fear, could not understand. But this was not all. He lifted up a huge horse-whip, and applied it with great violence to his back and shoulders, on which I saw the impression with my own eyes. The apparition was afterwards seen by the sexton of the parish, hovering about the tomb where his body lies interred, as the man declared to several persons in the village before he knew what had happened to the gentleman. Nay, he actually came to me as a justice of the peace, in order to make oath of these particulars, which, however, I declined administering. As for the grandson of the defunct, he is a sober, sensible, worldly-minded fellow, too intent upon schemes of interest to give in to reveries. He would have willingly concealed the affair, but he bawled out in the first transport of his fear, and running into the house exposed his back and his sconce to the whole family, so that there was no denying it in the sequel. It is now the common discourse of the country that this appearance and behaviour of the old man's spirit portends some great calamity to the family, and the good woman has actually taken to her bed in this apprehension. Though I did not pretend to explain this mystery, I said, I did not at all doubt, but it would one day appear to be a deception, and in all probability a scheme executed by some enemy of the person who had sustained the assault. But still the gentleman insisted upon the clearness of the evidence and the concurrence of testimony, by which two creditable witnesses, without any communication one with another, affirmed the appearance of the same man with whose person they were both well acquainted. From Drumlanrig we pursued the course of the Nid to Dumfries, which stands seven miles above the place where the river falls into the sea, and is, after Glasgow, the handsomest town I have seen in Scotland. The inhabitants, indeed, seem to have proposed that city as their model, not only in beautifying their town and regulating its police, but also in prosecuting their schemes of commerce and manufacture, by which they are grown rich and opulent. We re-entered England by the way of Carlisle, where we accidentally met with our friend Lismahago, whom we had in vain inquired after at Dumfries and other places. It would seem that the captain, like the prophets of old, is but little honoured in his own country, which he has now renounced for ever. He gave me the following particulars of his visit to his native soil. In his way to the place of his nativity, he learned that his nephew had married the daughter of a bourgeois, who directed a weaving manufacture, and had gone into partnership with his father-in-law. Chagrined with this information, he had arrived at the gate in the twilight, where he heard the sound of treadles in the great hall, which had exasperated him to such a degree that he had liked to have lost his senses. While he was thus transported with indignation, his nephew chanced to come forth, when, being no longer master of his passion, he cried, "'Degenerate rascal! You have made my father's house a den of thieves!' and at the same time chastised him with his horsewhip. Then, riding round the adjoining village, he had visited the burying-ground of his ancestors by moonlight, and having paid his respects to their manes, travelled all night to another part of the country. 
finding the head of the family in such a disgraceful situation, and all his own friends dead or removed from the places of their former residence, and the expense of living increased to double of what it had been when he first left his native country, he had bidden an eternal adieu, and was determined to seek for repose among the forests of America. I was no longer at a loss to account for the apparition which had been described at Drumlanrig, and when I repeated the story to the lieutenant, he was much pleased to think his resentment had been so much more effectual than he intended, and he owned he might at such an hour and in such an equipage very well pass for the ghost of his father, whom he was said greatly to resemble. Between friends, I fancy Lismahago will find a retreat without going so far as the wigwams of the Miamis. My sister Tabby is making continual advances to him in the way of affection, and if I may trust to appearances, the captain is disposed to take opportunity by the forelock. For my part, I intend to encourage this correspondence, and shall be glad to see them united. In that case, we shall find a way to settle them comfortably in our own neighbourhood. I and my servants will get rid of a very troublesome and tyrannic gouvernante, and I shall have the benefit of Lismahago's conversation without being obliged to take more of his company than I desire, for though an Allah is a high-flavoured dish, I could not bear to dine upon it every day of my life. I am much pleased with Manchester, which is one of the most agreeable and flourishing towns in Great Britain, and I perceive that this is the place which hath animated the spirit and suggested the chief manufactures of Glasgow. We propose to visit Chatsworth, the Peak, and Buxton, from which last place we shall proceed directly homewards, though by easy journeys. If the season has been as favourable in Wales as in the north, your harvest is happily finished, and we have nothing left to think of but our October, of which let Barnes be properly reminded. You will find me much better in flesh than I was at our party, and this short separation has given a new edge to those sentiments of friendship with which I always have been and ever shall be yours, Matt Bramble, Manchester, September 15. End of section 65